0: At Ashurst, we acknowledge First Nations people as the traditional custodians on the land on which we work in Australia, and we pay respects to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Hello and welcome to the first episode of 2032 and Beyond, our new podcast series focusing on the Brisbane 2032 Olympic and Paralympic Games. My name is Kim Wiegand and I'm the Global Lead for our Client Centre of Excellence here at Ashurst. In this podcast series, we'll be taking a detailed look at a range of important issues which touch on the preparations for, delivery of and legacy flowing from the 2032 Games. As a firm, Ashurst is no stranger to the Games landscape and has extensive experience in the delivery of recent major Games projects. This includes mandates for the Sydney Olympics, London 2012 Games, Tokyo Games, and currently in the delivery of the Melbourne 2026 Commonwealth Games. Throughout this series, we aim to draw on this experience to showcase to you some common themes as we head towards the hotly anticipated Brisbane 2032 Games. Today, I'm joined by two expert speakers, Andrew McCormack, a partner in the Ashurst Transport and Infrastructure team, and Mike Duggan, a director in our Ashurst Risk Advisory business, specialising in strategy and sustainability. In this episode, we'll be exploring two of the key concepts we're hearing a lot about as the planning for the 2032 Games builds momentum. These are legacy and a climate positive games. Mike and Andrew are with me to discuss just what these terms mean in the context of the Brisbane games. Welcome to you both. Mike, if I can come to you first, perhaps we should start with what would a climate positive games look like from your perspective?
1: Yeah, this is the question that's just on everyone's lips. And I'll tell you a story back in mid 2020, Asher's hosted a boardroom lunch, and we got a, a bunch of leaders that run businesses and are delivering projects around Southeast Queensland that really have a potential to have a real impact on the games. And the biggest question on their lips was really, what, what is a climate positive games? What does it really mean? Really, climate positive is all about going beyond what's called achieving net zero emissions, which is basically removing emissions to a minimum and then offsetting to an effective zero base. But it's, it's really about getting well beyond that to the point where you actually create an environmental benefit. And you do that by removing things like additional carbon dioxide emissions from the atmosphere and creating a safe climate for future generations. I'll tell you another little story. and This is how I always remember it. Back in Canada, I grew up in Canada. I was a a long trip canoeist. And uh, my father and I used to go on long trips, sometimes up to a week canoeing around the Kippewa in the uh, Quebec part of Canada around Ontario. And he always taught me to leave no trace, to make sure that every time I go to a camp that I absolutely leave no trace, pick up all the rubbish or anything that's been left behind, leave it in a better, in a better shape than it began with. Going beyond that, you know, you're know, you really picking up any, any other rubbish that you can find and, and making sure that you get rid of that. It's, it's kind of the same type thing. It's making sure that we leave the world in a better place so that future generations really have the opportunity to be able to enjoy the society that we've been able to enjoy for so many, many years. So net zero is one big milestone on the way up the mountain. But when you get to the top, it's all about removing those additional emissions. Climate positive is really the pinnacle of a combined mitigation and adaption strategy because really what you're doing is you're being able to manage your community by, you know, creating a big gaping hole in in the metaphorical boat, which is our carbon emissions rushing into that boat. We're drowning in that, absolutely drowning in that. So the idea behind climate positivity is to be able to really plug the hole in the boat and remove the water at the same time, which is the absolute perfect scenario.
0: Can you give me just a practical example there of what are some of the things that, that organizations should be doing and could be doing to achieve this plugging of the hole and, and siphoning the water at the same time?
1: Yeah, Kim, it, it takes both a, obviously a policy lever, a technology lever, but also then a big change in the way that we run our societies. I mean, we're talking about operating a society in a very different way and operating business in a very different way that, they're, that really we're not very used to as, a, as kind of a traditional traditional kind of business and, and financial market. One of the things I wanted to bring up that really helps kind of to, to give you a few ideas is this concept of the triple bottom line, um, which, was, which was started years ago by a guy named John Elkington. The idea is that we really need to pull the levers around economic growth. We really need to make sure that the social and community development aspects of our society are, are uh, you know, strong and changing. And we're also keeping a, a focus on environmental stewardship. And that, cha- that takes things like uh, you know, advances in, in um, energy and water technology. It takes, you know, a requirement for businesses to change the way they operate so that they actually account for all of the emissions that are within their supply chains.
0: Thank you, Mike. Andrew, if I can come to you now to consider the second concept we, we touched on, what is your take on the legacy we should be looking to achieve from the Brisbane Games?
2: Well, it's a good question, Kim, and I think there's a number of aspects to the legacy of the 2032 Games. I'll probably focus on three key aspects first would be cultural change second transport infrastructure third would be sporting legacy and all three of those are actually uh, interlinked and interrelated concepts
0: can we maybe just potentially just take them one at a time maybe starting with what you mean by cultural legacy to begin
2: yeah okay cultural legacy or cultural change is really about a need to change behaviors Um, If I was to sum it up, it's probably about promoting sustainability over consumption. It's also probably about looking to promote uh, the circular economy. That's something that we've heard a lot about. But what is it? Well, it can probably be summed up as a focus on reusing and regenerating the materials and products that we use, but also about uh, embracing sharing resources and refurbishing and reusing existing infrastructure. Overall, it's probably about prioritizing positive environmental outcomes over perhaps more traditional outcomes where the focus was on creating economic growth and making money. It's probably also important to realize that they're not mutually exclusive goals. It's just the timing is a little different. You can still get economic rewards, but they will actually come later in time and as a consequence of achieving the primary environmental. Uh, objective. A thing that I also think is worth pointing out, and it's a truism in life, is that change, any change, particularly this type of change, is not easy. In my view, I think we need to be looking for a carrot to encourage behaviour, rather than a stick to punish the poor behaviour we want to eliminate. What I think we need to do is demonstrate to the community that this changing approach is actually desirable and it will promote some immediate benefits. It's not just about avoiding some far-off doomsday scenario, it's actually going to make life better sooner. And in that sense, these games can be used as a focal point um, to create, if you like, a united vision for what the future should look like, and therefore that will support that behavioral change. And in this regard, governments, and by that I mean all levels of government, states, federal and local, have a unique opportunity to lead this behavioral change because they have the ability to influence market behavior through their procurement processes and their procurement decision-making. And hopefully will set benchmarks that the private sector will be able to then embrace and follow. In this regard, we've already seen uh, here in Queensland, Minister De Breni, who's the Minister for Energy, Renewables and Hydrogen, Uh, making it clear that a significant part of Brisbane's 2032 emissions are going to be supply chain related, which was something Mike mentioned before. And there's going to be a real focus on encouraging the supply chain to reduce those emissions so that the overall emissions total from the Games is much lower than it would otherwise have been. We've also had the, uh, the Director General of the Department of State Development making it clear to the market there'll be a heavy weighting towards low carbon intensity solutions in the procurement processes that the state will be running to procure goods, services and the like for uh, the Olympic games. A final observation for me on on this point is that um, I think the whole project needs to avoid the temptation to place an over-reliance on carbon offsets in order to balance the environmental books. Because while carbon offsets in of of themselves are not a bad thing, if we focus on carbon offsets, we'll actually miss the opportunity to embrace and implement long term, lower emission solutions, which will actually give us a prolonged benefit into the future, not, um, if you like, a sugar hit offset, which will balance the books in 2032.
0: So whilst not a stick, there's definitely the intention of some measures to put in place selection and benefiting those those organisations, suppliers, et cetera, who demonstrate all of the climate positive, I suppose, behaviours you're talking about.
1: I
2: think if you want to be considered for supplying to these games, and by that, that's going to be largely through the state government procurement process, you're going to need to show that you've addressed the climate positive issue you're going to need to show strategies and solutions which you know offer the lowest possible or potential emissions outcome we're never going to be able to re, you know remove emissions entirely from the supply chain but it's about reducing them and the way to drive that behavior is to make that a, an aspiration you have to fulfill in order to win the job and hopefully then actually move the market um, the will on the subject of carbon offsets, I think we'll see in the years to come, a more stringent treatment of carbon offsets and not using them as, you know, in some ways, an easy out in order to achieve, a, achieve an overall environmental objective.
0: Mike, just coming back to you on that, it probably leads quite nicely into uh, um, your views on if you were the B&E Games Sustainability Committee, if you're on that committee, what would be the top three things to focus on and how would these support the most impact for climate positive games?
1: Yeah, so this, this committee's um, right now just being launched. It'll work alongside the existing legacy committee. And I think, I think the sustainability committee is probably going to have one of the most important initial jobs in doing what I'd call setting up the operating environment. That's really going to be conducive to meeting those climate positive goals that are going to be put in place and this it takes a lot more than just policy and technology you can't solve everything with with just those two kind of levers. you really need to be able to, to focus in on some key things that, that will help that operating environment to really run smoothly and make it conducive to all of the various different policy and technology levers that we're trying to put in place and I want to keep with that, th- that theme of three that Andrew just talked about and I'm going to talk about my three E's and these three E's are really what's going to help the operating environment to to run smoothly and that's the enablers the externalities and experiences. So those enablers are those types of things that really amplify or scale up the core climate positive initiatives. And those are things like household income and business prosperity. So if we've got incomes that are higher within households and we've got more discretionary dollars to spend, we've got the ability for households to actually invest in reducing their climate impact. And that's, that's an important lever to pull. If workers are earning higher wages, they've got the ability f- to help their businesses to actually invest in the technologies that will help the businesses reduce their impact. So those types of enablers, along with things like partnerships, and along with things like movement and transportation of stuff, water and electrons around, are all kinds of things that will really be able to ensure that we can, we can create that environment that, um, that supports climate positivity. So two more E's, I've got a couple more to go, externalities. Externalities are those types of things like safety, jobs and the broader risk environments that are are part of the operating environment which climate positivity will be achieved. So safety is things like the environments where people work and recreate, and they still need to be um, as safe and supportive for the community as they were prior to us actually going down the track of trying to be climate positive. Jobs, we need job security, we have to have fulfilling employment, we need to support families to invest their time and money back into those technologies that I mentioned before will help us to become a more climate positive Southeast Queensland. So and those broader risk environments, such things as disputes and litigation stemming from uh, some things like unfilled objectives that we're aiming for as part of our climate positive plan will be areas that we have to be really careful around to ensure that um, we A, meet our goal, but B, de-risk the environment that we're operating in. My last E is experiences. So the experiences that we want the community to, to engage with are transparent and authentic. And transparency is all about saying what you mean and meaning what you say. It's disclosing those things that are the most important to stakeholders in a way that they not only engage with, but that are true and correct. Storytelling is another big aspect of this. We want to be as authentic as possible on the road to climate positivity. So the challenges that we you know, experience along the way, and the achievements that we experience as a community can be celebrated through amazing stories that we create across Southeast Queensland and Australia, and probably the world. And finally, we really want to be able to set up frameworks that allow us to monitor and evaluate the progress that we make towards climate positivity. The experience is going to be rooted in making sure that we really understand that we're achieving what we say we achieve. And there's nothing better than a good, strong monitoring and evaluation framework to demonstrate that.
0: Can I just touch on that just briefly? I mean that that framework those 3Es are these things that each organization a government department for example should be driving independently or is there a framework out there to follow
1: I think Kim there is there's a lot of different frameworks that these can draw from but I, I think in many cases that it, this is going to be very bespoke to southeast Queensland we we have an environment that's uh, like none other and to be able to to demonstrate those 3Es of enabling Externalities and experiences—we're really going to have to create our own framework. You know, this is the first time that climate positive has been created as a as an objective, a key objective of something like uh, a games. You know, Brisbane will be the absolute first. The upcoming games in um, in Paris is is focusing on net zero. They're actually not going to to be climate positive. And I think for us to be able to to actually strive to be climate positive, we're going to have to do things in a very bespoke, um, you know, Queenslander way. And create a framework that's um, that's uh, of our own.
0: Andrew, you mentioned the transport was a key part of the Games legacy. Can you tell us a bit more about transport as as you see it from a legacy perspective?
2: Yes, I think with transport, and in fact with all infrastructure that's being built um, in relation to the Games, the mantra, both from the um, the IOC and from the Brisbane bid and now implementation uh, committee is that we're building infrastructure for the future, not uh, just for the games. The games is in fact a catalyst to help achieve our transport ambitions, if I can put it in those terms. And what are those ambitions? I suppose um, putting it at at its most basic, it's probably about moving more people out of private vehicles, which is something we're still fairly wedded to in Australia generally and in Queensland in particular, uh, are moving them onto public transport. Um, doing that uh, simple thing or relatively simple thing should um, produce a number of environmental benefits. It should reduce pollution. It should reduce congestion. And if we do those two things, that should improve livability in cities like Brisbane and also improve connectivity and if you do those two things the two latter things improve livability and improve connectivity that should actually lead to an increase in productivity so again um, you can see there's an economic benefit that will ultimately flow uh, from achieving some fairly desirable um, positive environmental outcomes Um, an interesting difference between this games and and previous games is although it's by shorthand referred to as as the Brisbane 2032 and the Brisbane games it's not really just about Brisbane in fact it's definitely not just about Brisbane it's really about southeast Queensland it's about a much broader area and covers a lot more communities and one thing that that Brisbane and southeast Queensland will need beyond 2032 is a world class transport system and a transport system that offers a variety of transport options both public transport being a mix of buses trains and and here in brisbane a, a metro system but combined with non-vehicular uh, transport so pedestrian access ways cycle ways as well as retaining some you know routes and capacity for private vehicles and we've actually seen um, evidence of uh, a move in that direction already uh, there's a project that's in planning at the moment to uh, improve the rail link between Gold Coast, which will be a, an important venue for a number of uh, events at the games, and hosts uh, you know the next largest city almost in Queensland, and Brisbane, the biggest city and we're looking to have a rail link that is and a rail corridor that is both quicker in terms of journey times and offers more capacity, more frequent services and that infrastructure benefit would enable the region to grow and the people who use that infrastructure to feel and enjoy the benefits well beyond 2032. A bit closer to, to home in Brisbane we have a, a very big bus network and, and so does many parts of southeast Queensland and there's been a lot of talk about the opportunity to transition to clean buses uh, moving away from the diesel and even the, uh, the LPG uh, fleets that most bus companies and and local authorities are using. What's happened, though, is that uh, the industry has been looking for some clarification or some leadership from the government to say, okay, we want uh, we understand there's this long term objective to transition from the existing fleet to a cleaner bus fleet. You clearly want to then invest. But how are you going to invest? Uh, How many buses, how many units do you want, what's the demand look like, where do you want them and over what time frame. And we're starting to see, I think, uh, the state government responding to that. There was uh, some recent press, uh, recent press release uh, from the state government indicating that they're keen to actually develop a manufacturing industry here in southeast Queensland for electric bus vehicles. Because there'll be a demand for it, but they've also seen the opportunity to to grow that as a, an industry and base it here in Southeast Queensland. And that, you know, again shows this whole: if we have an environmental target, it can lead to some real positive economic outcomes.
0: The carrot you're talking about, right, as opposed to the stick. What's the actual benefit for the economy and the, and the local community? I like that, Mike. A final question for you. What legacy do you think can be enabled by a climate positive Brisbane Games?
1: Yeah, this is, this is the, the exciting question at the end where we really start to drill into what are, what are the hopes and dreams for us you know, as a community. I think Southeast Queensland has an opportunity right now to almost act like a bit of a living laboratory, you know, where we get to experiment um, with leading climate technologies, ways of living, ways of doing business, you know, that'll have a lasting legacy on the environment and community you know, well beyond the Games. And the one I really want to highlight that I think um, will enable a climate positive Brisbane games and the legacy of the future is, is the net positive social impact. And I think we talk a lot about the climate impact that we'll have, but this, these games have the ability to really create such an incredible positive social impact for our communities and to answer some key questions that, that people across the community are going to have, like, how will this affect my life? How, how will we as a community really benefit? You know, how is, Legacy really created, um, you know, a better future for, our, you know, the generations to come. You know, the, these are the questions that the focus on, you know, climate positivity, but even more so on, on positive social impact should answer well beyond 2032.
0: Clearly, uh, the 2032 Games are a sporting event, but perhaps the biggest uh, global sporting event, but there's a lot more to it, as you say, the, the social impact and others. Andrew, just to close out, how do you see sport fit into the legacy of the Games once it's all over and done with?
2: Well, you're right when you say this is a sporting event and it probably it's certainly one of the two biggest global sporting events that, that happen. But it's actually a, a golden opportunity for uh, for Southeast Queensland to change things up. And in terms of how sport fits into that, I think there's a real opportunity to, to leverage both the new and upgraded sporting facilities we're going to be left with once the competition's over, but also to uh, leverage the global profile that these games are going to give Australia, and in particular, Brisbane and Southeast Queensland. There's probably three, uh, three ways that we should, we should look at that. Uh, the first is that there's a real opportunity to establish Southeast Queensland as a center for sporting excellence, um, both in terms of being perhaps a, a hub for sporting technology companies who will be interested in the fact that we are delivering this important sporting event and that you know, we've got the ideal climate and facilities for them to make this a hub and a place where they base themselves. And we again, we create a new industry that can thrive here. And in a related, uh, related vein, um, national sporting organizations here in Australia can you know think about using Southeast Queensland as the hub for their organisations, for their headquarters, and basing themselves here? Again, it's about growing a new economy, new types of business that are going to be able to sustain uh, people's employment and communities after the games have have been finished. There's also a great opportunity to improve uh, health outcomes for the community, and it might sound a little try, but. One thing that the Olympics do is they generally get people off the couch and thinking about trying to take up some sport and some physical activity. So you've got the uh, kind of desire to emulate uh, the athletes or feel part uh, of the team, uh, but also the ability to then do something about it, Um, particularly for the younger generation. They'll be able to use uh, these facilities that we're going to have. And, And most of the facilities are going to be available for community use after the games has finished. And that's going to be a really important um, sporting legacy piece. Perhaps the third one, and it's it's the most important, but in some ways the hardest to articulate. There's a real opportunity here to use sports, to use the games, to unite the community in striving towards a common goal. And what is that common goal? Well, it's perhaps articulated best as a, as it move towards a more sustainable way of living. And that, if you recall, sort of links back to my first point, which is this is actually, in my mind, all about behavioral change and how we achieve that.
0: I like that. I'm not sure that you'll see uh, me emulating Usain Bolt any time close to 2032, but I, I, I buy into it absolutely looking at the behavior change and, and that sustainable way of life. I, I think that's really important. I suppose to wrap up, what would be quite interesting to hear from your perspective is what does the next few months look like we, we obviously 2032 we're you know quite a ways away from that actual event but there's a lot to happen in the meantime what does even the next few months look like on this journey
2: well you're right when you say 2032 seems like a long way away but it's not 9 years it is actually the longest lead in period any uh, olympic city or region has had but we are faced with a, a i say a challenge but also an opportunity that no other game cities had before in that we have taken on a commitment and it's a part of the Olympic contract that we are committed to delivering a a climate positive game and that means we're going to have to do things differently so we're going to need that time and at the moment uh, we're still in the planning phase it's actually quite an exciting time because the next few months should see some more clear direction coming from both the Brisbane organizing committee and also uh, the state government about how we're going to actually deliver on these uh, objectives, what are the practical things that are going to have to happen, who's going to be doing them, when are they going to be doing them. And look, that plan is not going to be in such granular detail that everything will be solved. It is likely to be a a framework and a a sort of a a roadmap into the future, but then there will be many projects that need to be delivered in order to bring it all together.
1: Yeah I think Andrew you've 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 taken a, a great long view and then and then brought it back to the to the last kind of couple of couple of months and I think over the next few months if you were to just break it down even into another couple of threes there'd be three Cs wouldn't there there'd be bringing on capacity so making sure that we've got the capacity to actually deliver on the initial planning phase. So that's hiring people. You know, the the games committee is going to have to hire in key positions as we're seeing right now to ensure that we can actually deliver on the planning phase and have the right skills and capabilities there. Second one is, is consultation. You know, part of the next few months is getting out into the community and start talking to stakeholders and understanding what this actually means to them and utilizing that information to feed back into the planning phase and the setting of our interim goals over the next few years the last C is really all about communication, and it's getting out there and really starting to talk to people and start building those stories that um, that are so important to making sure that the community comes along in the journey, because that communication phase is all about winning the hearts and minds of those people in the Southeast Queensland community, so they become part of the entire uh, journey that we go on and, and not just a willing part, but an excited part and a, and a part of this journey that um, that helps us to be uh, as successful as we know we all want to be.
0: Thank you Andrew and thank you Mike for sharing those insights, I really enjoyed understanding more about the games as we move forward. It'll be interesting to see as the master plan and legacy plans for the games evolve in the coming months, as you say, how the concepts of legacy and a climate positive games are really brought to life. Well, that's all for this first episode of 2032 and Beyond. Thank you for joining us. We hope that you can join us again for our next episode when we will speak with Wayne Gerrard, a member of the Brisbane Olympic and Paralympic Games Legacy Committee to get his views on how Brisbane can take advantage of the legacy opportunities offered by these games. To hear other Business Agenda episodes, you'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, feel free to subscribe to Ashurst Business Agenda And leave us a rating or review. Until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye for now. This podcast contains general information and does not constitute legal advice. Ashurst is not a sponsor, licensee or promotional partner of the Brisbane 2032 Olympic and Paralympic Games and the Olympic movement, nor any Olympic body, event, team or athlete. Nothing in this podcast is intended to suggest any such sponsorship, license or promotional affiliation.